Leading Wild is a community of leaders who connect, learn, and grow to create the future. The Leading Wild series provides space and time for this community to gather, learn, share, and take home empowering ideas and strategies. Leading Wild is geared towards new and mid-career leaders who are deepening their leadership practice and also broadening their networks. And now, your host, Steve Vassor for Leading Wild. Welcome to the show, folks. And I'm eager to bring into the conversation Dr. Kirk D. Henney. Dr. Kirk Henney has served as a behavioral scientist and later senior epidemiologist since 2007. He earned his bachelor's degree in sociology from James Madison University and his master's and doctoral degrees in medical sociology from Howard University. Dr. Henney's experiences include extensive work in the field of HIV prevention and care. He has authored over 30 publications in scientific and peer-reviewed journals and other uh, publications. His research includes a range of HIV-related topics, including HIV behavioral interventions for African-American heterosexual men, HIV and housing, HIV and violence, e-health interventions, and other related HIV topics. He also served most recently as guest editor for the AIDS and Behavior Special Issue. HIV in the South, which was published in 2019. And if you get a chance, you may want to take a look at some of his articles and his works, because I knew he had more degrees than a uh, than an oven, and he has more sense than a fragrance factory. What I didn't realize was the brother had more articles than Ebony and Jet combined. But one of my favorites from the title, and I'd love for you all to take a look at it, really has to do with around HIV and, and men particularly African-American men, and this idea of epicenter of HIV being in the South. And that's one of the many articles that he's written. And so without further ado, I'd love for you all to hold on, stick and stay, and check out just what's going to be an an action-packed conversation with Dr. Kurt D. Henney. First of all, thanks for having me on your your podcast. I appreciate it. My background, uh, you know, I'm I'm a behavioral scientist slash epidemiologist, and I work for uh, the Centers for Disease Control. I've been there since 2000, as, an, as a full-time employee since 2007, uh, but I actually arrived in 2004 as a um, postdoc. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, Silver Spring, Maryland specifically. I went to uh, James Madison undergrad, which is located in Harrisonburg, Virginia, James Madison University. And then went to, after a couple years of kind of doing the whole, I actually was a teacher for a while. And then I went, eventually went back to graduate school uh, at Howard uh, for both my master's and my doctorate degree, all in the field of sociology, but specifically with a concentration in medical sociology. So from that point on, based on my work and my research, because I always wanted to be a researcher in health, in health specifically, I went on to, um, got a postdoc position at CDC in 2004, and it just kind of went on from there. You know, I think that part of me, my own interest is really kind of, and it kind of goes into your, I think it was like your, your, one of your questions in terms of my background and kind of what it brings to the table. I think that just kind of looking back, you know, you go through life and you kind of don't really, you have to do your moments of reflection to really kind of see how all this, how your life came together. Um, in a weird way, it's not like I sat down and planned it out map by map, you know what I'm saying? No, you know, 
props to those who can do it that way. It just never evolved that way to, to me. But kind of just reflecting back at this point, I think what I realized was that I think a lot of my experience was, was really shaped by my own unique journey. Uh, I think being an African-American black man in America, but not just that, um, there's a lot of layers to that. My family is from Jamaica. Um, I was born maybe a year after they came, arrived to the country. So I'm also a son of immigrants, you know, working class, blue collar, you know, just going through that journey and just kind of seeing their journey. And I, and, and it wasn't until I had a recent conversation with them. It's quite a journey to leave your country and go to a whole nother country you ain't never been to and try to make a life. I really had to sit back and just appreciate that journey because a lot of us freak out when we just go away to college and they, and they, and they went away to a whole new country with no security net, no safety net, not even a clue. They just know that, Hey, we got to make it. We can't, we got to make a better life than what we have where we're living from. And, and trust me, I, 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 I cherish my Jamaican heritage. My parents, they do too. Love the family, still would go there. I can't count how many times I've been back just to visit and I wasn't even born there. But at the same time, you have to try to make a life and, and things are economically were a situation. You got to try to make a way. So there's not a few, a lot of options for people who come from humble beginnings. So for those coming to America. So anyway, so just going through that experience and really walking through and seeing their experience from being turned down housing simply because they were being approved until they saw who they were, who, when the landlord saw who they were and the accent that came out of their mouth, ripped up the application right in front of them. Um, this is when I was still in a little bassinet. I mean, the, all this stuff happened in the seventies, <laughs> you know, when I, when, when I was out and, and right where I grew up in the same general area. So we're not talking about the South or anything like that. This is right in Maryland, supposedly a little bit more progressive than other parts of the country, you know? So, and, and, and just, you know, working multiple jobs and all that kind of stuff. So I think just seeing that and that work ethic of, they just put their heads down and this did because they know it's like, listen, there's no other option but to succeed. Simply is it. There is no plan B, you know, so so they so I think that that watching that journey helped shape who I am in terms of how I approached various moments in my life and and then growing up and shaping who I am. So, you know, kind of going and then one interesting path, too, is just going through the college is that I mentioned after undergraduate still kind of figuring out what I wanted to do. But I know one I always wanted to get back. And so I think at that time. Teaching was one of those avenues that was um, appealing to me at that moment. And I think just learn, and I learned so, and I taught for nine years as a public school teacher, fourth through sixth grade and junior high school. Wow, uh, God bless. So, so really from fourth grade through ninth grade, I, I had all the, I had those crazy years, you know, of development. Yeah. But, you know, just going through that experience. Um, you learn so much about human behavior. You learn so much about context of people's lives. It's one thing to see how people operate in their behaviors right in front of you, but when they all bring all those experiences with them, and and just and, and so when you're interacting with them, you're not just interacting with that individual. You're reacting to uh, the, the the success of their lives, the love of their family, also the stresses that they bring from family on a daily basis. All that. It's exemplified 
through your interactions with each individual. And to and and when you're dealing with young children, you see that in its rawest form. You know, they 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 they, they haven't learned the filters at that point in time. So you really kind of see the foundations of people's um of engaging with humans at a real level um day to day. And what I learned from interacting with that age group honestly is no different than interacting with adults. I, I, and for every adult I come across, it's like, that's Johnny right there. Oh, oh, oh that's Tamika right there. I was like, from, from back when I was teaching, the, the same person that is the same general characteristics. I think just being involved in sociology um, kind of prompted me to go ahead and pursue my graduate studies there because that was always interesting, that dynamic, and particularly on how that dynamic really influences your health, your physical health and your mental health. You know, because so much of what we have are health-wise is so much a part of that background, that backdrop of our lives, our upbringing, the stress, the, the, the family structure. All of those things are exemplified in health outcomes, mental health or, or physical. And I saw that even in my own family. You know, not only my parents, although they're relatively healthy, um, they have a lot of chronic stuff that they have, particularly at this age, but they're, they're still they're still doing relatively well. But I saw it in other relatives as well that weren't able to have such good outcomes, were able to, to manage their situations. And you can see how the health impact, how the, that context really impacted their personal health, both physical and mental. Um, so that kind of just prompted me more to, even though I was still sociology, really kind of geared towards medical sociology. I wanted to study that pattern in, in the context of health. Uh, so all that kind of led me to um, CDC. And, you know, in terms of as I moved through various stages of my career, um, and when you speak about leadership, to go to your question, I think all of those attributes, th th those experiences um, from learning about the core of my own background, appreciating that, that journey, Understanding, seeing that, how that influences other people through my teaching and seeing how that manifests really kind of gives you a lens in order to when you interact with folks, and especially when you're supposed to, when you're tasked with leading some task in there, that you have to be aware of those dynamics when you're interacting with colleagues um, in order to get to a certain task. Sure, there's a task that needs to be done on hand, but really how do you engage with your colleagues, whether you're in a leadership role or just in a collegial role, um, in order to ultimately be successful in whatever it is that you do. Um, so, you know, there's, I think that there were, if there were some aspects I learned, I think they learned three things and then, you know, I don't want to, I'll, I'll, I'll stop right there, but the three things I learned that's key is one, communication. You've got to be real clear. You got to be really clear in terms of what you're communicating, your expectations, um, but also to really understand um, sort of what their motivations are, particularly if you're in a leadership role. That That's important. To be consistent. Whatever you do under circumstances, people appreciate consistency. It doesn't, even if they don't like you, <laughs> they appreciate the fact that you're consistent. It gives you, a, it garners a certain level of respect because they're saying, okay, Regardless of whether I agree with you or not, you're consistent in that regard, and therefore I kind of understand where you where you, where you're coming from, and you're not um, wishy washy about that. People 
generally respect that, regardless of whether they agree with you or not, or have a different viewpoint, whatever the case might be. And I think the third thing is to be invested in other people's success. Those three things I learned from growing up, from being a teacher in the classroom, through my graduate school experience, through my to my uh, experiences working where I work as a behavioral scientist and epidemiologist, and even in my other venture, I was involved in the theater company world, also sort of as a side hobby. Same dynamics. Those three things, uh, you know, play well into there as well. So those are just some of the things I've kind of gained from this experience in a nutshell. So, um, you know, I want to hang with that for a second um, and then come back to... um, come back around to a question, but I want to go a little deeper on, actually, you said three, but I I count four um, because what I heard you say was clear communications. I heard you say, you've got to understand their motivation, that you've got to be consistent and that you've got to be invested in, in other success. Right. So Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, it's, it's like a buy three and get one free. kind. I got you. I got you. Special to that. <laughs> and so I'm, um, I'm, I'm interested. Let's go a little deeper mm-hmm. uh, because I, you know, one of the challenges, as as you can attest to, I think the leaders run across is that they think they're clear, mm-hmm. right? So you might tell somebody, you know, something that feels clear. You might transmit something, but how they receive it or what they receive may not be the intended. So. I just want to walk through these four gems and go just a step deeper into what you mean uh, first by clear communication. What do you mean by that? Well, I think one, you have to, one, uh, part of clear is to really sort of you, you set the parameters of how you engage. Whether, and that could mean a lot of different things in a lot of different situations. Whether you have, like for most of the folks I work with that I'm in a leadership position, I had weekly check-ins with them, regardless, you know, and, you know, I I sort of, you know, we always have a a set process in terms of, hey, we have a list of things we want to discuss. We'll update from the week before, see where you are right now. And then afterwards, sort of have a process in which, okay, this is what I think we arrived. Here it is. Does this seem to reflect your understanding? So it's the check-ins. And so whether you do that verbally or emails or whatever the case might be, it's one thing to transmit information. It's another thing to make sure to ask the other person to reflect back what they got from that, because that's, a, that's how you can verify on whether your communication style or approach was clear enough in that instance or not. And I think a lot of times you have people very comfortable communicating whatever is on their mind. But then to ask for that point in terms of reflecting back, that means now you're giving the floor to the other person and allowing them and and create an environment in which they will feel comfortable enough in order to communicate that to you. And and, and a lot of it is just on your approach. And, And your approach really has to be based on some level of being humble to accept like, hey, listen. You know, I'll set it up. I always set up say, I just want to make sure I, I, I'm not sure if I communicate everything. And clearly, I just want to make sure that we're on the same page or that I was able to communicate clear. You do, you, you phrase, frame it in that way so that you essentially um, make it communicate to the other person. Listen, 
I'm not perfect. I might have said something that was totally unclear to you, and that could be my bad. I just want to make sure. Do you? I mean, am I clear to you? Do I need to make something? Was I not clear on something? Do you have any questions that you just a little fuzzy on? And you you constantly do that so that they know that this isn't just you doing it just for face value. You make sure this is a normal part of how you communicate. Again, going back to that um, consistency piece. Um, if you're consistent with it, then they believe that this is a sincere part of what you do. If you do a piecemeal, it might seem like is this some arbitrary thing. Oh, did you just do a training workshop on this? And then now you're practicing on me. So, so that's where the consistent part comes in, because then the consistency part will then verify to them that this is something that's is a part of you. This is how you're doing it. You're not just doing it for piecemeal. At least that's one of the ways you can communicate that. So um, I, I think that very much you want to make it a, 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 a two way street. And. You also, it's not even just in terms of how you communicate, but what you communicate about, too. Yeah. I think that's key. And I think it's important that you set aside time to check in with them. Mm-hmm. Listen, I got this agenda. Did you do my task? That's all good. But then you got to check in. Listen, what we doing here, how's that aligned up with your own personal goals? Right. I mean, you know, I don't expect you to be here forever. I expect you this is just a stepping stone. Again, that's going back to that last point, investing in other people's success. You know, I always tell people I work with is that my goal is to get you to the point where you are no longer, this this job no longer serves you. You're ready for the next level. That is my goal. Mm -hmm. My goal is not to keep you here forever. That would be more of a self-centered goal. You know, being invested in you mean like, I imagine you have your own plan. And so that's why our conversation is really about where does this fit in your own development? And then how do we get there and do check-ins to make sure that, listen, are you, because what you find is that people that feel like they're getting something out of this work experience, they tend to work so much harder for you than those that feel like you just hear, you know, you just treat them like a peon. I found that out time and time again, when they feel like they invested in my development, man, the type of work they put in for you, it's like tenfold regardless. So I'm gaining something out of it, understanding that by incorporating their goals and their success and then realizing that, hey, listen, I hope this gets you to the next level and I have to post a job opening for somebody else, hopefully somebody like them that's just as hungry and just as focused on their career development as hopefully that last person was. That I think is part of, my approach style I get from all those experiences. So I think, I know I've crossed over some of those other points, but part of the communication is making sure you foster that. So it's not even just in terms of what you communicate, but but how you communicate. And the two need to be entwined and aligned. That makes a person uh, feel appreciated. In so the one, the one that I, I would want you, and I, I appreciate that. I, I would have wanted to hear, and I want to hear a little more about um, understanding their motivation, right? Mm-hmm. So in this leadership moment, it's a little bit different than, you know, at least when I was coming up in, you know, leadership roles and in supervisory right. roles, which mm-hmm. felt more like command and control than they felt like, you know, uh, coaching. I think the idea of, you know, folks talked about coaching and so on and so forth, but that didn't really take hold until, um, you know, for me at least, until you know later in my career, as a as a movement, as an approach to being a leader. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think key to that is understanding folks' motivation. So, t- you know, how do you do that? Um, how do you get a sense of how or of how to understand someone's motivations um, in the workplace? So it really sort of depends on the type of individual you're engaging with, because different personalities sort of, again, this is something I learned in the classroom. You can't approach everybody the same cookie cutter way because people are sort of wrapped differently. So me personally, what I've always tried to do is at least in the first initial interactions, general interactions, um, without going to any specific detail, I'm basically just getting to know the person I'm working with. Um, You know, I ask a a lot of open-ended questions about them. You know, sure, I can look at their resume and see what they've done, but really wanted to, but, but I use their background sort of to, in some vein in in some of the questions that you're um, asking of me during this interview, um, just to get a sense of their journey, what was sort of motivation, what kind of got them up in the morning, kind of what they, and where they see themselves. Because once you kind of get a sense, at least from their perspective, both on what they communicate, and if you been at this a while, you can even garner some things on what they don't communicate, you know? Um, and, and once you kind of get that sense, that can be a starting point for you to then try to say, okay, the best, here's a general approach I might need to engage with this person. For example, I'll just give you a really basic example. Some folks are really self-starters, self-motivators. You really don't even have to do but so much. You just sort of give them the game plan and they run with it might not need to check in with them, but so often they're kind of like, hey, let me do my job. I kind of do it in and I get it to you when it's done. And their work performance will kind of bear out of if that approach works for both you and them, you know. Other folks might need a little bit more hand-holding. Not to say that they're less competent. They just might need that, you know. What I see a lot of people in leadership positions do is that they disregard that. They have their process. They do what they do. and they move forth with it. Those people who sort of their style align with their leadership style, hey, great for them. But other people that don't, uh, they, they, they fall by the wayside. And I think that at some, for a leader to be an evolved leader, you have, not that you have to necessarily be good at all styles, but you have to recognize on the style that you're working with and understand the pros and cons with that. That, that calls for a lot of self-reflection that calls for a lot of self-study because you got to know yourself first and foremost before you start learning how to interact with others. I know there's some personalities that I get along real well with. I mean, it's just like, boy, I mean, you know, it's like freaking frat, you know, but other other styles, I said, man, this, this is a style I, I got I got issues with, you know, and but you have to know that about yourself. So, okay, this is my the best way I can manage this. It may not be perfect for this person. It may not be perfect for me, but this is the, based on what I've learned, I'm cognizant of that. And so you still avoid a lot of um, potential pitfalls from lessons learned and just learning about that. But at first start with you understanding yourself um, in order to then engage yourself. So I don't ask anybody of any questions that I haven't asked myself on multiple occasions on a regular basis of myself, just in terms of reflecting on my leadership style and just me as a person in interacting with them. So um, I think that that's sort of just in terms of the process a little bit. Um, And again, one thing I've appreciated, every individual is going going to bring their own set 
of um, personality traits, strengths, weaknesses, whatever the case might be in backdrop. And the more you learn about, you know about all that or inquire about it or get a sense of it, it puts you, it arms you with more tools to be, to better to um, make a um, relationship, you know, work relationship that's, that gets you both to where you need to go in order to meet the goals you need to meet. Uh, yeah. So, so let's pull up a second. I, I, um, I really appreciate that insight and that intel. I think those are really strong gems and jewels that you just shared, you know, in terms of leading um, folks and just, you know, to kind of recap, you know, there's the idea that you've got to be a clear communicator. You've got to be consistent. You've got to understand the motivations of your teammates um, and the folks that you're leading. And then um, as well, be invested um, in their success and the success of your team members. Those were the four keys that I think you just walked us through. Really interested um, in your take on what it's like to lead in this moment. You know, and let me just define the moment um, for you. It's 2020. It has been an epic year and it's only, you know, the top of the year. We're only in the first quarter of 2020. We are in the midst of a global pandemic that hasn't, the likes of which haven't been seen in any lifetime, at least for a century or better. And here we are thrust into this historic moment. And here you are, not only by title, but by virtue of who you are and what you do in the world, you find yourself in a leadership role. And so against that backdrop, what's it like to lead right now? Like, how does it sit with you? You know, what are you tussling with in this moment? You know, as, as we, in this, I mean, frankly, it's a historic moment on levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what are you grappling with? in this moment and then we'll go a little deeper um in that question so to answer your question and and i'll take it more on this specific moment and i'll take it more still relevant but more beyond than this pandemic situation that we're facing right now but i I, i'll first focus on sort of the slightly larger picture then go down to this pandemic related stuff so in this era which is which has emerged for some years um, what I see here is that, you know, we're just the communication avenues through whether it be social media and the level of connectivity has really ex- changed over the last couple decades. And what I see from a human behavior standpoint is that I see more and more people, particularly the more recent generations, have really defined their sense of self through their social media persona, which now they've almost, their sense of self-esteem, their goals, their network is really now defined by this image, though it's it's interactive to a sense, but it's really of a kind of controlled, mediated, almost, I don't want to say contrived, in some cases, in many cases it is, representation of their true selves. You've seen interactions in which folks are sitting at a table next to each other, but would rather text each other back and forth rather than have a face-to-face conversation. And they literally are sitting shoulder to shoulder. I've seen that many times. It's because that their sense of self has been now reshaped that it has to be mediated through this electronic digital um, medium 
that now being able to relate to people directly and consequently themselves has been definitively changed and it used to be some years ago. So now let's go back to this pandemic situation. I'm going to tie that in. One of the things in terms of leadership, um, well, but that's sort of like the global thing. So now folks are now forced to alter their work environments. Many folks who might have been communicating through this means before remote teleworking, but now you have a greater percentage of folks who have never had to do this on a full-time basis now being forced to do that. And so you see this, we're in an interesting era in which that you have, particularly the younger generation, who are now, their work is now even being more defined by this medium. And so now, how is that impacting their really authentic um, engagement with their colleagues, with their cohort, with their productivity? You know, um, it's further now being altered by this medium and, and, and further takes them away from the kind of like individual face-to-face being able to relate sort of situation. So as a leader, one, you have to be able to adjust to that because now, particularly if you're in a situation which that wasn't the norm, now you have to do so. And you have to be able, all those things I talk about, clear communication, being consistent, things of that sort. You have to do that. And now there's like a, 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 tra- a medium that can record you, that can somewhat distort how that gets communicated can then be reshared or reposted to others. I mean, it's, it's depending on your situation, there's a whole lot more variables there than sort of like the direct one-to-one communication there. And, and that's being a challenge for those, particularly if you haven't been used to doing that as well. Also too, though, going back to the pandemic, there's another side to this, that folks are, everybody's being taken out of their normal way of going about life. And that stress, again, talking about context, that contextual backdrop now comes to the forefront because now not only are you in this situation where you're working with colleagues, everyone has these stressors. Everyone through this pandemic is going through change, a shared experience, if you will, that's impacting their day-to-day lives. Everybody's affected. Everybody. How you in how that stressor impacts that individual and consequently how that impacts your interaction with that individual as a leader. Now you have to be cognizant of not only sort of like the environment in which you are interacting with, but now these additional stressors that not only impacted them, but are impacting you as well as an individual and, 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 and being able to now function sort of on the fly, being able to change that and understand that people are going to react differently to those situations. And again, learning about knowing on, hopefully you get a sense of knowing your colleagues well enough to know that what might be the best approaches to, to interact with them. Um, unfortunately, for those that if you haven't been able to build that rapport, to be able to build that through this remotely becomes even more challenging. So for leaders to now who have not been able to build that rapport, been able to have that um, relation in terms of being able to understand their motivations, what works for them, what doesn't work for them, and consequently what works for you 
in terms of leading them. And you haven't built that rapport, this environment and the sudden change of it is going to be challenging for you to really being able to now shepherd this process in this new in this new reality, at least for the moment. And so how would you suggest, um, you know, are the leaders that are that are in on this podcast are either early stage, right? Like mm-hmm. they're just becoming moving into a leadership role. Mm-hmm. Or I would characterize them by and large as folks who are in their mid-stage, right, of their mm-hmm. leadership career, um, mm-hmm. maybe mid to late. You know, we'll see who shows up. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm just curious about, you know, what you would offer them as strategies. You know, mm-hmm. how do they get from, how do they help move people during this moment? You know, mm-hmm. so recognizing certainly that people have to adjust recognizing that they've got to build rapport, that they've got to really know their colleagues, you know, using those tools in the quiver, I'm still left with the question of how. You know. So, so I will suggest that as much as you can, and, and of course, you know, every leader has to be able to apply, again, it starts with them as an individual, but you know, it, you know, leaders are not robots. They're human beings too. And they have their own quirks and things of that sort. And that impacts everything. In generally speaking, those leaders have to take the initiative to recreate a lot of those tidbits, whether it be like routine check-ins, you know, creating that interaction during those check-ins um, that allows, that is dynamic. Yeah, sure. I'm going to hear everything you said, but, you know, and give you feedback, but I want to hear back from you. And a lot of leaders, depending on where you are, may not be comfortable with that, but you have to get comfortable. Just as uncomfortable as it is for your staff person to listen to you and 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 and, and all what you're going to feedback to them, you have to be willing to give them the floor, some opportunities to reciprocate that. That's how you build trust. And so in this dynamic pandemic, I think as much as you can, um, and I find this, and this is just from my own personal experience, a lot can be lost in text or computerized communication. You know, texts, emails, great, and they're efficient to a certain extent, but when you're communicating, having these type of dynamic situations, a lot can get lost in translation. I will always try to minimize that by making sure you have um, phone conversations to as much model that interaction you would have at the office because these dynamic conversations are much better suited for those kinds of, you know, even video chats, if you w- want to go to that level, more personalized than, say, the text or email. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think so, that's one technique. So let me push a pause. Let me push a pin in that. Um, because I think the gems you provided earlier kind of answer the question, but I think you're you're giving you know more heft to what you shared um, uh, just prior. And I want to switch um, gears a little bit, okay, and do two things before we close. The first is you know I want to get this one is a little bit it's a re, I'm remixing a question that I asked earlier, sure, uh, and that you answered earlier. I'm going to just make it a little more targeted. No problem. And then I'm actually going to throw a, uh, and it, it's not an entire curveball, but just something I think that, um, you know, knowing you the way I know you, I think would be super interesting, super dope. Okay. Uh, so the first question, um, and this one will be a really, you know, just rapid response. Give me the top two lessons 
leadership lessons that you've learned from from teaching fourth graders? I think I mentioned it, man. Um, you know, uh, consistency. <laughs> you got to be consistent. Uh, kids will expose you when, you when you do one thing one way and do it the next time. Oh, they will expose you. They'll call you out in their own way. And they will. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that. Um, so being consistent, man, being consistent. I would say also being I say of those that I mentioned, I think, I mean, they're all good up there, but I say being consistent, also being transparent as well. Letting them know the more folks feel there's an underlying agenda, the more distrust you you build. And uh, so as much as you can, you want to be as transparent as you possibly can, given the circumstances. Uh, So folks know that when you do communicate with you, there's not some ulterior stuff going behind the scenes. You know, every situation is different, so that may not be practical, but but that's it. I would say those are the top two, but those four, okay. I learn them all in the classroom, man. <laughs> Trust and believe. Got it. Well, no, I appreciate that. And then this last question before we close mm-hmm. is, um, you know, as you know, um, I am a former DJ. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love music. It's just, you know, it's, it's in my blood, been in my blood, still in the blood uh-huh. as we speak. And so I'm just curious. I'm curious about the the Kirk, the Dr. Kirk D. Henny uh, mm-hmm. soundtrack right now. What's, right. Which, what are you listening to right now? Give me your top three tracks. No judgment. Hashtag no judgment. But Man. You know, what are you listening to? Listen. All right. <laughs> Artist, now, artists and song will be helpful. Or, man. You know, or if you're listening to an album, the artist and the album title, because there's very likely, very likely there will be a some kind of playlist that shows up on Spotify or, and Tidal or wherever you get your music based on these selections. So, you Man, know, no pressure. Bruh. <laughs> All right. Dang. Why did you say you should have sent me th- this question ahead of time? <laughs> <laughs> but that's what's dope about it is you can look at your phone or, you know, whatever. Oh, man. All right, all right. I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you off the bat. Off the yeah. bat. Yes. One soundtrack. I don't know. It defines me so many ways. Tribe Called Quest. I tell. Surprisingly, not Low End Theory. Actually, the first album. Wow. Um, okay. Has uh, you know, the the, the Paz album, right? Yeah. That one defines my whole that was my first year in college it it's like i i listened to that religiously yeah. i love i'm a big tribe fan but paths of instinctive rhythms and that whole yeah that one all right uh, all right third second one oh okay. <laughs> it was like that was the second and that was the first and the second <laughs> man, man, man this is the most stressful question of the whole thing <laughs> let's see Oh man, okay. So, in a very different way, Miles Davis kind of blue. Uh, I think I, I was a jazz DJ, disc jockey, radio disc jockey at college back in the day, and I ran the jazz program. And uh, <laughs> as far as traditional jazz, um, Miles Davis kind of blue because it reminded me so much of hip hop. It was all improv. That was a one take session there. That that whole album, um, and it's sort of like Miles laid the laid the foundation, and all those artists sort of went for theirs. And to have that kind of 
band put together that everybody can go for theirs. That's no different than brothers getting together in the freestyle and just going for it. And that was the forerunner to that. Miles Davis kind of blue. Ah, the third one. Oof. Okay. There's so many, man. So this is hard. I'm 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 doing my, my I'm doing my best. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Uh, You're so, doing great, by the way. You're doing great. So the third one, and it's not an album. I guess it's a compilation of sorts. But I'm a big Carlos Santana fan, mm-hmm. and uh, so his greatest hits with uh, "Black Magic Woman" and uh, uh, and Django and all these other hits, man. And the thing is that to have that artist. Really, it's almost kind of like a blend between the the heavily spoken word of tribe and the instrumental vibe of Miles, and then you have this dude that's sort of in the middle where he has some vocals, but much. I mean, the main artist on his old album is his guitar. Hmm. That's the lead. The, the 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 vocals is almost the accompaniment to the guitar, and. Man, I mean, sometimes, man, when you're just in a certain mindset, and I've seen him live several times, one time front row, and what that man can do with a guitar, and again, reminds him of other artists I admire, like Prince and all those that have just that that that, that skill set with the guitar to be able to communicate that. And I don't even play an instrument. But boy, if you can make an instrument like it's talking to you, man, I mean... Right. That that's it. So 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 here's the controversial barbershop segment. Given okay. that you just threw that out there with Santana, right? Right. There's right. an argument in uh, speaking of social media. Mm-hmm. There's an argument uh, that somebody tried to start because people are bored and they want to mm-hmm. start fights in the internet. Oh, right. Right. They're uh, bored, so they got to start a fight. They got to start fights because clearly, you know, uh, apparently, you know, there's nothing not else to do. Enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> not enough to do, and so. And so the fight on the internet has been Jimi Hendrix is overrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that was just somebody rolling a grenade into a room just to see right. what happened. Right. Uh, but I, wonder, I just wonder if you had to rank Jimi Hendrix, Prince, mm. Carlos Santana, mm. and George Benson. How would you rank those? Okay, that first of all, that's a, you <laughs> start, straight up. I was just starting fights. All right, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go at this. I'm not going to think about it. I'm gonna just go. So this is gonna be emotion stuff. <laughs> that's okay. That's all right. That's all right. This is some straight up emotional stuff. But man, I would say. Now, are you talking about overall or just the guitar? You know, you're getting technical, brother. You're trying to all right, all right. Like, overall, it sounds like you know, you're trying to you're trying to back out a little bit. I'm trying, I ain't trying to back out. Man, there's so many ways you can look. Okay, I gotta go with overall, overall artistic everything. Prince has got to be number one because he just got that performance aspect along with the skills and the guitar and just his creativity all together. He's he he's a total package in that regard. So I got to put Prince number one of the ones you you, you get. Yeah. Carlos Santana number two because I think that his skills on the guitar. By the way, I saw them two brothers, Prince and Carlos Santana, on stage together jamming live. That was totally impromptu. That was unbelievable. But that that's back in DC nineteen ninety something whatever. I'm dating myself. However, that was unbelievable. However, Prince. Santana, mm-hmm. Jimi Hendrix, oh, uh, wow. J- 
Jimi Hendrix, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll have to put George Benson last on that list. Um, wow, yeah, that's painful. I, because that's painful. yeah, because, so, yeah, because to me, <laughs> to me, yeah, George Benson, yeah. That's my ranking. That's my ranking. Okay. All right. That's fair. You know, you got to stand on it. That's fair. I got to stand on it. So, you know, I think uh, off the cuff, because I hadn't thought about this question before, uh, this particular question until you mentioned Santana um, mm-hmm. in, your, uh, in your top three albums. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I had to rank them, um, I'm going to go, wow, this is, this is really hard. And I'm trying, not to be, I'm trying not to be biased by your selection. Right. I actually happen to love George Benson's uh, guitar work, man. So okay. he's he's got to be like he's a strong number two for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Santana would be my number four mm-hmm. because I love Hendrix, and so my I agree with you on number one, which would be Prince. So again, in order, Prince one, Benson two, Hendrix three, Santana four, and only because. I have to admit, I've got to get my Santana chops up. So that's okay. the bias. I don't have as much, de- you know, like my intersection with Carlos Santana really comes um, um, much deeper into his catalog. Like when he did, uh, I mean, when I say deeper, I'm talking about really the more contemporary stuff when it sounded gotcha. more hip hop. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That's when I kind of came into the show. So for me, I'm late to the party, mm-hmm. and you know my introduction was more mainstream and popish, whatever could make it to the radio. Right. Um, that has now been remixed 150 times by Rihanna mm-hmm. and DJ Khaled and all mm-hmm. of that. You know, right? You ain't gonna do all of that, but that's where I come in. Right. So, so, I, so no, bro, bro, we all can't be as well informed <laughs> about our musical thing as others. So, you know, number love here, bro. Nothing That's, right. <laughs> That's right. No, it's super dope. Listen, man, so um, I want to thank you. This has been um, uh, an exciting conversation, a really important one, um, also an insightful uh, conversation. How do people, if they want to get in touch with you, you know, if they want to get some coaching or, or that kind of thing, how do they get in touch with you? I think the best way I would, I would suggest is that I have a LinkedIn um, account. So if you just look up Kirk D. Henny, um, and there's a link, and I have a LinkedIn profile. And I, when it, you know, so most of my professional networking uh, um, interactions, I use my LinkedIn uh, uh, account for that. It kind of has a little bit more of my background and what have you. So, thank you for joining us at Leading Wild, a production of Leading Wild of Seek Further, and a partnership with AIB Marketing. For more information and to join Leading Wild please visit our website, leadingwild.com.